Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Have you booked your place on my new Dublin Famine Tour yet? This tour is a unique journey that immerses you in the world of Victorian Dublin. Through the course of the tour, you not only hear the stories of Dublin during the Great Famine in the streets and buildings which these events took place, but through the use of listening devices, you will also hear the sounds of the city in the 19th century as well. It's a completely different walking tour than anything else available. The tour is starting to fill up and only runs three days a week. So to avoid disappointment, book your place now at DublinFamineTour.ie. That's DublinFamineTour.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this episode in the Great Famine series looks at the US Civil War. Now the history of the Great Famine is not one we associate with war and certainly not wars in other countries. However, in what is a totally neglected chapter in the story of the Great Famine, hundreds of thousands of Irishmen who emigrated from Ireland during and immediately after the famine fought in what was one of the largest conflicts of the 19th century. In the last episode, we looked at how millions were driven from Ireland and we covered how they established themselves in the USA, experiencing mixed fortunes. In 1861, when the US Civil War started, many of these same people would sign up for both the Union and Confederate armies, depending on where they lived. Indeed, so great was the Irish participation in the US Civil War that it's fair to say the Great Famine certainly had an influence on how the conflict developed. Tragically though, while tens of thousands of Irishmen died, their experiences have since been forgotten. This podcast looks at their story. You will hear about the hardships individual soldiers endured, but also some disturbing chapters from Irish-American history, particularly how racism among Irish communities led to deadly attacks on African-Americans in New York during the war. Now, researching a podcast on such a detailed topic that has been neglected for so long is immensely difficult, but I felt it was essential to include this in the series on the Great Famine. So to make this podcast, I've interviewed Damien Shields, who has spent years writing on the topic. Damien runs the great website 
irishamericancivilwar.com and is starting a podcast on the topic soon, so that's one to watch out for. I've been a fan of Damien's work for years, so it was great to interview him. I was totally captivated by what he was saying and I think you're going to be too. Anyway, that's enough by way of introductions. I'm going to let Damien speak for himself now. The interview started with Damien giving an overview of Irish involvement in the American Civil War, something I found literally jaw-dropping given the scale. The figures are fairly startling based on the work that I've been doing. Around 200,000 Irish-born men fight in the Civil War. For any county that saw large numbers of people emigrate during the decade after the, decade after the famine, it is by a long, long, long way the, the biggest conflict. Uh, where they see people in uniform. So, for example, Cork, where I, I am now, it, it's it's a colossal conflict in Cork history. More men fight and die from Cork in the American Civil War than any other war in history. We then moved on to look at the causes of the war, which are very important in terms of understanding the Irish experience. You hear a lot of arguments about why the American Civil War starts. And there is no debate among anybody who looks at it in any serious way that the American Civil War is caused by slavery. You hear lots of things about states' rights uh, and things like this, tariffs. The, the, the states secede because they're seceding over the states' rights in relation to slavery and property ownership, which is slavery. They, all of their secession conventions, their statements, when they secede from the Union, they nearly all explicitly reference slavery. I think it's important to say about the Civil War that, I, I mean, the seeds of the Civil War are laid in the 18th century. That it wasn't just an event that suddenly kind of sparks up around Abraham Lincoln. The, the problem with slavery was something that the United States was consistently attempting to address for decades in advance of this. As the country became ever more sectional in relation to it, it became ever more divided um, as the two sides faced off on, on, on effectively the expansion of slavery. So the United States is a growing country. Uh, this idea of manifest destiny that they can they can bring the, the the great shining light of the republic from coast to to coast, and so you know there's wars with Mexico where they take over large chunks of territory. They're expanding over into the west, and that all brings problems. The question of whether new states, new territories are going to be slaveholding or free is a major bone of contention, and there's consistent efforts to address this. Um, all through the years um, leading up to the Civil War, the decades leading up to the Civil War, and they tend to be largely unsuccessful. So it is the cause of the war, um, which then breaks out in April of 1861 in um, Fort Sumter in South Carolina, when the uh, Southern forces fire on the United States garrison in the fort uh, in an effort to make it surrender. And, and so you have this situation at the start of the war where the war is caused by slavery. But I think it would be fair to say that a vast number of people, particularly in the north, do not go to war because of slaves. That isn't the reason. And maybe it's something we, we discuss. But it, that is not why a lot of them actually go to war. But it is the cause of the war. The focus of this podcast is specifically about the Irish in the war. So next, we went on to talk about how the Irish engaged with the racism that was so prevalent in the USA when they arrived in such large numbers in the 1840s and 50s. The Irish in the North uh, and in the South, to the extent that they do become politically involved and tend to be involved very firmly on the, on the idea that, that there's really not much problem with slavery. So 
it, one of the one of the attempted compromises part of it in the pre-war era brought in a thing called the Fugitive Slave Act, which allowed southern plantation owners or southern owners of slaves to chase their slaves into free northern states and bring them back. And there's a particular controversy in Massachusetts, actually, uh, where apparently some of the most eager to, to run down these escaped slaves are Irish militia companies, Irish militia units, um, to, to, tr- to try and take them and have them return to the south. New York, as a city where the most Irish are, um, tends to be pretty pro-slavery in general in the, in the years leading up because there's a mass economy coming out of the south in cotton and other products um, that, that is helping to, to fuel New York's economy. And so, and so they remain pretty pro-slavery up until the war. So, you know, the Irish see the African-Americans as a, as a threat economically to them if they could come. Again, remember that there's very few relative African-American people living in the northern states, say, at this time. Uh, there's four million of them in the states that would secede and become part of the Confederacy. So there's concerns um, that there will be um, a direct economic competition there had been issues in the 1850s with Irish and African Americans um, clashing over jobs such as the stevedoring and things like this where they're directly competing. What is clear from this is that the Irish were not particularly concerned about slavery or in many cases had no issue with it whatsoever. Yes, they would sign up in large numbers to fight for the Union. I asked Damien why this was the case and what these men were fighting for. But after 1861 and after the Confederates the South has fired, there is an absolute sea change in opinion in the North. So people who would have been saying beforehand, you know, we can't allow radical Republicans to bring us to the brink of war over over slavery or whatever it may be. The minute the Confederates um, are seceding and they fire on the United States, there is an absolute war fever that takes over the North and it takes over the Irish in the North as well. This idea that they have to preserve the republic, preserve the union. And that is the number one motivational factor for Irishmen enlisting in early in the war, is that they want to protect the United States. Because the view is, is that if it starts to fragment like this, that it'll, it'll end, end up in, in the destruction of this republic. It was interesting that Damien also highlighted the fact that serving in the military had been a tradition for many of these Irish people long before they had left Europe. So there is a is a tradition of serving in the regular army because the, the service in the army isn't seen as a kind of a, a great profession, really, in, in these days. So it was always a, a, a big hit for the Irish because it was steady employment uh, and you could get on in it. And so the Irish had always been doing that. In 1830, for example, in Ireland, uh, there were more Irish than English born in the British army. So there was a bit of a tradition of, of service in the regular forces. Um, it's worth noting that, that the first two soldiers to die in the American Civil War who died during an accidental explosion at Fort Sumter are both Irish. A farmer called Daniel Hawk from North Tipperary and Edward Galway, who was from Cork, West Cork. I've frequently heard that many Irishmen signed up to gain military experience in order to return to Ireland to aid Republican organisations like the Fenians. Damien addressed this issue, highlighting that it's overstated. Now, some people do that. That there's definitely a, a number of them who do that, but it's it's really overplayed in my view as a as a major factor for most of these people. The evidence shows that Irish people, even though they re- maintain an affinity with Ireland and are always interested in in what's going on in Ireland and often willing to financially support efforts uh, 
towards Irish nationalism, most of them have absolutely no intention of ever returning to Ireland, that they view the United States as their home and they're, they're, they're there to stay. So uh, I think that's, that's completely overridden by this idea that you're, you're serving to preserve the republic. Now, in terms of the U.S. Civil War, one of the few enduring images of Irish involvement is a scene from the film Gangs of New York, which depicts emigrants arriving off ships from Ireland where they are instantaneously recruited into the army before they even get a chance to settle. Many of you on Twitter asked me to raise this issue with Damien during the interview, and this is what he had to say. Yeah, it's actually something I've written about in the site as well, because it's... um there's a lot of problems with that scene, right? I love the film, actually. But there's a lot of problems with the film, too, but that's always the way. <laughs> but I enjoy the film. The, the, it completely denies the agency that Irish people had in relation to the war. So, number one, it, it didn't happen quite like that. And, and there's actual documentation that demonstrates that the, the, the Union Army wanted to set up a recruitment station right by, right by the dock. Um, and it was... They were advised against doing it. This is towards towards the end of the war. They were told that if they did it, the Irish people and the Germans would write home to the people in Ireland and Germany and they would tell them, don't come here because they're just using you to enlist. So like the media in, in Europe is talking about these efforts of consistently trying to recruit people in Ireland and in Europe to go and fight in the war for the north. Um, so, you know, this, this idea that you have a bunch of gormless Irish guys who barely know where they are, if you look at them in the film, kind of wandering off, being handed a musket and then being sent south is just not true. There were some people who were duped into joining the American military. And the minute you went out of the gates, there was a, a whole bunch of people who were willing to fleece you for everything if you were an immigrant. Most of them would be fellow Irish people as well, it should be said. Um, but by far, the majority are if they enlist in the army and are coming over, they are doing it because they intended to do it in the first place. They are seeing it as an opportunity to, to, to improve themselves because of the reward, the financial reward that it brings them. So that's accentuating this kind of Irish as victim narrative that I, I, I think that we do far too much of in Ireland. That there's, a, there's a proactive agency here. The American consuls who are based in Ireland are overrun with people who are coming to the consuls and saying that they will, if they would pay their passage to the United States, they will enlist in the, in the United States Army if they will get them to America, that, that, that they'll join up. And, of course, because of the, the British laws, um, it was illegal for foreign recruitment in Ireland. They couldn't take them up on that offer. But there was almost certainly there was illegal recruitment in Ireland. People just pretended that they were going to work on railroads or working somewhere else um, and then went over and enlisted in the army. So... Some people were duped. Nobody was duped to the extent that the film portrays and the majority experience is people intentionally going to join. Um, that I have a guy from Yall in, in East Cork here who goes over, uh, he, he leaves his wife and child, young child in Yall, goes over specifically to get the bounty, writes back, he's writing back in early 1864 um, to his wife saying, oh, the soldiering is going well, obviously hoping to bring them out in the future. Um, says that there's going to be a big battle, reckons he has as good a chance to survive as any other uh, on the very first day of the battle in a place called the Wilderness, his first day on active service, he's killed and never seen again. And so the family never leave you all. But he, he gambled on the fact that if he went and he enlists, he can start a new life for himself and his family in the United States. But for him, it doesn't work out. For th thousands of others, it does work out, though. So 
If Gangs of New York is inaccurate, I asked Damien, how did Irish people join the Union or indeed the Confederate armies? There's recruiting happens all over the North, but, you know, a typical way uh, um, you would recruit is that a a local middle class individual decides that he wants to form a company of 60 or 100 men. Uh, He may be um, a local merchant or something like that. Generally tend to be an educated individual and they would set up a recruitment center somewhere, say, let's say on on the corner of Broadway. The men come and they enlist under him. Those companies are formed together into regiments and, and that's what go off to war. And what you get in a lot of the cities in the north, the same is happening in the south, of course. There's a big, um, a big surge um, in the south among Irish in the south as well who are doing a similar, similar thing um, for the Confederate side. You get a lot of ethnic units, so guys who decide to join up to fight under an Irish flag, if you like, a green flag of Ireland and the stars and bars or the stars and stripes. And so in the, in the north, um, New York, again, is the, is, the, is the majority Irish fight out of New York units, but you have the formation of things like the Irish Brigade in late 1861, which is commanded by Thomas Francis Marr. And they're made up of initially three New York regiments who have a distinctly Irish character. And those type of regiments are replicated all across the northern states and they're replicated in kind of smaller scale companies all across the southern states as well, where Irish come together um, to kind of fight under this uh, joint banner. But the bulk of the people who fight do it um, in non-ethnic units, so they just join up. So like 20% of the Union Navy during the American Civil War had been born in Ireland. Again, these aren't ethnic Irish, which is a far higher figure. These are the people who were born in Ireland. They're not people who necessarily just identify as Irish. Like, like that has to be the biggest Irish naval experience in the history of the nation. Um, 20% of the United States regulars, the, the, the kind of professional soldiers during the war, are Irish-born as well. So you have these colossal numbers of, of soldiers all over the place um, who, who are going out to fight. Um, and economically, after preserving the Union, this is from a Northern perspective, economics plays an immediate role for them from 1861. So the idea that you're looking after your family um, is a major thing. There, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a slump economically at the outbreak of the war. Um, and even though the pay that you get in the army tends to be lower than what you would get if you were, say, out working as a laborer all the time, it's steady work. And you see this consistently with the Irish community in the north that they don't have steady work. The, the majority are kind of flitting from work to work every few weeks or, or, or every day for some of them. Uh, but the army provides this supposedly constant stream of monthly pay it's about thirteen dollars a month as a private that you would get, uh, and so this this is something that they, that attracts them, and it's something that keeps them going throughout the war. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Like so many modern conflicts, when the US Civil War started, many assumed it would end quickly. It didn't. It would go on for four years, lasting from April 1861 until April 1865, with three quarters of a million people dying. The outcome of the war hung in the balance during the early years of the conflict, but by 1864 the Union strategy began to slowly overcome the Confederates. With the re-election of Abraham Lincoln in November 1864, the Confederacy's last hope of a mediated peace evaporated. In April 1865, the Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, with other rebel armies surrendering in the following weeks. A few days after Lee's surrender, Abraham Lincoln was famously assassinated. The experience of this war had been horrific for the individuals affected by it. There were hundreds of thousands killed during the four years, a figure which amounts to 50% of all US military casualties in history. I wanted to get some sense of what the experience of war was like for individual Irish recruits. Damien recounted the story of one man whose experience is really moving. Um, but I, I'll give you, I'll give you the, 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 the story of one young Irish immigrant from Derry, if you like, a, a, a young lad called Barney Carr. And we can, we can recreate a lot of Barney's story, actually. We know an awful lot of, of what happened to them. He, his father dies in Ireland during the famine. Uh, whether it's a result of the famine or not, we don't know, but probably it was um, a, a, as a result of the famine. And his mother is an assisted immigrant with the children to the United States. So, you know, most Irish immigrants to the United States actually had a bit of means to get there. They were very poor when they arrived. There's around about 50,000 people get assisted immigration. So these are really poor individuals who are effectively their passage is paid for. Uh, but it's just their passage. So the Carr family land up in New York having got their passage paid, but they have no money at all. And uh, Barney's mother, Anne, can't afford to keep the children. Uh, she can't afford to maintain them. And so she has to put them into an institution she hopes for a short period of time so that she can try and, and get money and then um, get them out of it again. So when she eventually does make enough money, she gets Barney's two brothers out. But Barney has been sent west to work on a farm uh, out in the Midwest. And so she can't find him after that. And she actually puts um, these things called information wanted ads. There's an information wanted ad that she puts in the newspapers in 1860 looking for her son. She goes, information wanted of Barney Carr, who left Ireland and landed in New York in 1851 with his mother and her children. Being unable to support them, she was obliged to send three of the boys to Ward's Island, from which place a person named Fenton Goss from New Jersey took one of the boys to West Liberty, Ohio. The unfortunate, disconsolate mother, who is now in certain circumstances, offers a reward of $20 to any person who can give her any information of her son, Bernard. Okay, so that's the pretext. These assisted immigrants, he is sent west and she eventually receives a letter from Barney during the American Civil War. 
and Barney has enlisted in an Illinois regiment um, during the conflict. And so she hasn't seen him more or less since they emigrated. Uh, and they're, they're kind of reacquainted themselves um, through this series of letters that he sends during, during the war. And uh, I suppose the culminating bit of correspondence, he talks about how he's looking forward to seeing her again. Uh, and he's on the line in 1864 at a place called Kennesaw Mountain in Georgia. Uh, and he writes a letter home to her from the headquarters of the 79th Regiment, Illinois Volunteers. It says, Dear Parents, once more, I take the pleasure of writing to you a few lines to let you know that I am still alive yet, as I suppose you are well aware that Sherman's army has been fighting ever since last May, and I am still in his army. I've not written to you in a good while. I thought you'd be uneasy about me and thought that I would write you a few. And then his letter stops, right? His letter stops. And it continues again a, a bit below it. And he says, Dear Mother, I had to stop writing. We're lying on the line of battle and there are 12 pieces of cannons in front of us and they're shelling the Rebs. And that draws the rebel fire, and it's a horrible place to be in. Cannonballs are flying thick around us, and the shells are screaming in the air and through the woods, cutting the timber and earth in all directions. But thank God, Mother, I'm still safe and unhurt, but how long I may still remain so, I can't tell anything about that yet. God only knows how long it may last. I'm sure I can't tell anything about it now, but, that, but by the grace of God, I'm still alive yet, and I'm well and hearty in the bargain. And I hope that when this few lines reaches you, they'll find you all well. Mother, these are hard times, nothing but fighting every day and killing men. I'm getting tired of it. But then I want to see them keep those rebels moving to Atlanta. And I guess that's the only way of putting down this rebellion. And the sooner it's down, the better it is for them that lives to see it. Mother, pray for me that they may live to see it over and live to see you all. I want to see you before I die. And I want to see all of the Carr family. So after he wrote that letter, seven days after he wrote that letter, the Union launched an assault all along that line. He was on a Kennesaw Mountain, and it caused devastating casualties for the North. Uh, his regiment, Barney's regiment, was really lucky. They only lost one man killed in action, but that was Barney. He was killed, so he never got home. So I, the, the, that, in a nutshell, for me, encompasses a typical story, but another one of the reasons why we need to be looking at them you know, he would never have been there if it hadn't been for the famine, the, the assisted immigration that led there. And when they arrived in the 1850s, it's not like they'd reached the promised land. They had incredibly tough times. And eventually his mother not only had to experience the famine and the loss of her husband in the famine, almost certainly maybe the loss of some other children in the famine. She then, a decade later, has to be reunited with her son only for him to be killed in this conflict before he, she ever has a chance to physically see him again. So that's quite typical of the, the literally thousands and thousands and thousands of files um, that, that I work on all the time. Um, and, I, you know, you get quickly motivated to, to try and tell their story when you're reading that sort of stuff. Damien's website, IrishAmericanCivilWar.com, is full of great stories like this personal account of Barney Carr. You can find out lots more there at irishamericancivilwar.com. His work is also funded by readers and fans of Irish history on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash irishacw. That's patreon.com forward slash irishacw. Both are really worth checking out. While stories like Barney's are largely forgotten, one incident that involved Irish people is notorious and for good reason. In 1863, 
Largely Irish mobs rioted in New York when a draft was called. Damien explains some of the reasons for these riots and why it is a particularly grim chapter in Irish-American history. Uh, we were we were discussing earlier, well, we, we went through some of the reasons why Irish people were particularly um, anti-African-American, racist towards them in, in the lead up to the conflict. Um, and if we look specifically at the Irish in the north here, the Irish and the vast bulk of northern um, white men go to war to preserve the Union, to preserve the United States. So even though the war is caused because of slavery, the vast bulk of these guys are going because the South are trying to secede, set up a new country and destroy the United States as they view it. Right. Then the war starts in 1861. In late 1862, after the Battle of Antietam, Abraham Lincoln announces the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which comes into effect on the 1st of January 1863, which is a war measure uh, that, that says that any slaves in areas that are in rebellion against the United States, so in other words, in Confederate areas, uh, will be free. In other words, to deny them um, as, a, as, a, as, as an asset to the South, right? And obviously because Lincoln is hoping to emancipate um, African-Americans as well. There's a fairly strong Irish reaction to that. Uh, and it's important to say it's not just an Irish reaction. There's a very strong reaction from an awful lot of uh, white people in the North. And there is a very strong reaction from the Democrat Party to which the Irish are allied to, saying that this is a complete alteration of the war, that this is a war about preserving the United States. It is not a war to emancipate the slaves. Right. So you combine that with a number of things. 1862, the war has turned, begun to turn into a charnel house. Famous units like the Irish Brigade have been decimated in the battles of the summer and autumn and winter of 1862. And there is a viewpoint growing among some people, particularly in places like New York and Manhattan, that the Irish are being used as cannon fodder because uh, of prejudiced officers. Now, that isn't actually true, but there was a viewpoint that that. that, that. So you have a kind of growing realization a lot of people are dying, this perceived change in the war aims. And at this time, because they can't get enough soldiers into the army, they institute the draft um, that we're all so familiar with um, from, from um, conflicts such as Vietnam, etc. And so the, when the draft is to be drawn in New York, uh, on Manhattan, uh, there is a major blow up. It's the biggest riot in, in, in history there. Um, and there was a number of very, um, you know, there were grievances that you would, you, you would find hard to, to argue with. Uh, you could commute, the, if you had enough money, you could pay to get out of the draft, um, for example. So it disproportionately affected the working classes. And in New York, where we discussed the one in four people are Irish, where the working classes are overwhelming the Irish, that is disproportionately affecting the Irish. And so these riots break out in New York, uh, not just in New York, there's draft riots in a number of other places um, uh, and opposition to the to the draft in places like the, the Irish dominated coal mining region, the northeast Pennsylvania, for example. Um, and so they start to attack things. They start to burn down offices of people who they would see pro-emancipation. They burn down the Coloured Orphans Asylum, although thankfully um, none, of the, none of the children um, were, were killed. Uh, they string up a number of African-Americans and lynch them on lampposts because they are directly correlating 
that they have to go off and fight and die to save or to free rather African-Americans, emancipate African-Americans of which they have no interest in, in dying for. Um, it's worth noting in New York that it's not just African-Americans they're attacking. Uh, one of the most senior commanders of the Irish Brigade, who's a hero, Nugent, in the Irish Brigade, um, is in New York at the time, and his house is burnt out by the Irish. There's an Irish colonel who has to fire on the crowd, uh, and he's beaten and bludgeoned to death. So it's, it's their, their, it, their rage is being reflected in anyone as they see associated with the war or the conflict. Um, and it has a major impact, the, the draft riots, on how um, a lot of the North views the Irish contribution to the war. It colors it. So if you like, you know, the, the positive contributions of the Irish brigades um, and Irish in, in other units is, is diminished as a result of that. Um, again, Professor Susanna Ural has done very good work on this that shows that, you know, it kind of perpetuates an anti-Irish uh, anti-Catholic Irish, I should say, viewpoint that, that goes decades beyond the war. Um, so it's a complex event. Uh, and I'd say about two thirds of the rioters are Irish. Um, but there are grievances that they certainly did have. But who they directed against is, you know, reflective of the racism that was part of, of the, the, the life there at the time and reflective of who they held responsible for, for sending them off to war. This led us on to a conversation about the origins of Irish racism towards African-Americans. Damien's answer here is fascinating in terms of what it means for racism in Ireland in the 19th century. Yeah, and I think it's something that we haven't investigated enough. So I spend a lot of my time looking at the ordinary Irish um, individuals' correspondence during that period. That's kind of my, my, my area. And when you read that type of correspondence and you look at the type of events they're involved in, say individuals who were from Ireland who were involved in racial violence against African-Americans. What you see on a number of them when you look at them in depth is that some of these people are coming to the United States as adults, right? So they're coming in maybe the mid to late 1850s as adults. Uh, maybe they're joining the Union Army. They're becoming involved in, you know, sexual assaults or something similar in relation to African-Americans. Uh, and you're left immediately thinking the question, well, these people can't have been so radicalized to view African-Americans in this fashion just in the United States. There has to be a level of racism coming out of Ireland before they emigrate. And I, I think that is probably the majority story, but it's one that hasn't really been touched on uh, or explored in any great detail yet. And I think to really understand that, we have to understand that virtually everybody who was white at this time was racist, right? So there's a base level racism there where they are just not viewing, even this is the, true of a lot of emancipationists, they are not viewing African-Americans as their equals. And the minute that you don't view someone as an equal, you can quite quickly descend into a slippery slope of where you end up in terms of, of being influenced to, to perpetrate acts on a particular group. Um, as we all know through history. And so I, I think it's it's just not reasonable to say that all these Irish people are landing off the boat and it's there that they're suddenly, because they're being involved in the Democratic Party, that they see the African-Americans as an economic threat. You hear this argument that the uh, the Irish um, were, were, were engaged in racism in an effort to become white. That's one of the arguments. And, and to be honest, it's not one that I buy into. Um, I think the Irish people, even though a lot of people might have looked down on them in the United States, they didn't look down on themselves. 
you know, they, they, they saw themselves as a, as a fairly proud people, as far as I can tell, um, in the 19th century. So that's, that for me isn't a, isn't a reasonable argument to make. So, but you have to look at, at that base level for almost everybody, you know, it, it would be seen as very radical to have viewed an African-American as your equal, even if you were anti-slavery in the United States. Uh, and then when you combine the Democratic Party um, affiliations with pro-slavery, when you combine issues such as the fact that a lot of a lot of abolitionists um, would have been extremely anti-Catholic in their outlook, um, which meant they were anti a lot of Irish people um, in the United States. Uh, they might have been very progressive on almost all other aspects of societal life, uh, pro-female suffrage, pro-emancipation, but anti-Catholic. Uh, and so there's a lot of these things feeding in to this kind of cauldron of racism. And it isn't to say that all the Irish in the United States were racist. There are a number of them who speak vocally in relation to, to uh, slavery and everything. But what, what, what I suppose we're talking about here is, is the majority view and I suppose the view that the evidence suggests that the, the, the bulk of the Irish working classes um, in the North in particular held. As the interview was drawing to a close, I wanted to get a sense of the overall impact of Irish involvement. They make a major contribution to it. Their contribution is similar to the contribution of African-Americans. There's about 200,000 African-Americans fight for the North. Um, it's similar to the Germans. They slight, fight for the North in, in slightly higher proportions. I, what, what, what you would say, I would say, is that the Im- immigrants in, as a whole, and particularly then if you combine them with African-Americans, so these are two groups that the South doesn't have in, 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 in if you like, to play the cards uh, with. The South doesn't have the same number of immigrants and they're not willing to use African-Americans as soldiers that they, they hold on that right to the end of the war. They will not use their slaves um, as soldiers. And because of the North's willingness, because of their pool of immigrants and because of their willingness to use African-Americans, I would say you could say that that, that does... Um, have a, a significant impact on the war. It's, it's difficult to not to say that, you know, 180,000 and probably in excess of 200,000 ethnically Irish didn't have an impact on the war. Whether the Union wouldn't have won the war is, uh, is a different matter entirely. Some people view that the war as almost inevitable once it, it, it continues on, but really the South have uh, skin in the game into late 1864, into, the, into the, the presidential election of 1864, they can still get a, a favorable outcome to the conflict. Um, so, I mean, the war is a finely balanced conflict, more or less from start to finish. Um, but what we can say is that they play an incredibly important role in it. I don't think there's any doubt about that in terms of manpower. And it might have significantly, at least significantly prolonged the conflict if they hadn't been involved. Finally then, Given so many Irish fought, we talked about what impact this had on the Irish experience in the USA in the following decades. Prior to the war, while racist themselves, the Irish had also been subjected to racism. And I was curious to see if this changed. Interestingly, Damien also gave a fascinating insight into the Irish living in what had been the Confederacy. Where you really see the impact of the American Civil War on the Irish community, I think, is in the decades after the conflict. So there is an argument that says that, that because they did it, that, you know, there was never, never any more Irish racism and that they'd really proven themselves to the United States. And that's demonstrably not 
the case, right? That uh, Susanna Yorl has shown that, um, you know, you only have to look at the illustrations of, say, Thomas Nast, who's a famous uh, a cartoonist. Uh, the illustrations that he is representing Irish people has into the 1870s shows that there's still significant anti-Irish sentiment. Um, in, in, in the case of those who'd fought for the North, though, where they have a big advantage is, is that the United States has only two major immigrant groups at the time of the war, the Irish and the people from the German states, right? They're the two massive immigrant groups. By the late 19th century, you're seeing this influx of other uh, European groups, like the likes of the Italians, uh, for example. And the Irish are very good at getting their memory stamped all over the Civil War right off the bat. The Irish Brigade produced a history in 1867, like right after the war, bang, we did our bit. This is what we did. And there's a lot of uh, uh, regimental histories that are coming out about Irish regiments. Uh, these histories are produced by veterans. Memorials are put up around the place so that in the 30, 40, 50 years after the conflict, they've really stamped their mark on their involvement in the war. And it's something that the later immigrant groups can't do because they, they, they just weren't there uh, in sufficient numbers to do it. Uh, so that's a major advantage for them as you get into, say, the turn of the 20th century. Of course, there are other factors then because of the obvious upward mobility of people the longer that they're there. You know, the children of these people are often doing better um, that, than their parents. And so there's a natural upward mobility in true society um, as the 19th century progresses. But that's probably the biggest impact of the Civil War is the fact that they could claim this ownership of it as the decades wore on that they were there uh, and and they were a part of it and that lives on today the irish brigades are probably the most famous brigade um to fight in the american civil war the case in the south is is interesting again the work of professor david gleason there has shown um you know so the irish were fighting in the south for the confederacy um they fought bravely by all accounts if they were taken prisoner they you know they tended not to be as die-hard Confederates, as, as, say, Southern slaveholders were. Um, but in the years after, during Jim Crow, etc., the Irish are, are more than willing to play their role in, in perpetuating what's called the lost cause in the South um, and, and, and playing up their role in the, in the war on that basis. So, again, there, there's good and bad in it. Um, I think a lot of Irish men would have, and they, 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 a lot of them explicitly said it, that they fought for the union, you know, till their, till their, till their dying day. That would have been their major, major reason that they fought for the North. Uh, but it has obviously brought with it into the 20th century, the benefits of it, um, being at the end, also a war of emancipation and the positives that that, that brings for a community. Well, if anybody is interested in like a lot of what I talked about, um, you can look on my website. There's a blog that's been running for eight years, so there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Irish stories of, of, of women and, uh, and men who emigrated um, on IrishAmericansOfTheWar.com. It's not just about the conflict, it's, it's about all that kind of social dimension as well. And yeah, I've done two books on it. The first one is just called The Irish and the American Civil War. Uh, and the second one deals directly with the pension files. So the Barney Carr story was one of them. The, the pension files book um, is talking about Irish immigration and what the, the pension files tell us about that. And that's called The Forgotten Irish. Um, and they're both published by the History Press uh, and available to, online but uh, and in uh, bookshops too. Um, but 
um, from before they left Ireland all the way through from this period, this is the only place that you're going to get it in large numbers by looking at people who were impacted by the Civil War. I would like to thank Damien for spending the time in doing this interview. You can find out more about his work at irishamericancivilwar.com. Next time, I will be returning to the usual format and looking at the story of the Irish who settled in the United Kingdom after the famine. In many ways, their experience was the worst of all famine emigrants. After that, we will be returning to Ireland to cover events like the 1848 rebellion as we move into the closing years of the Great Famine. Until then, Sloan. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.